Welcome to GLAD, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Levi, your host for today, and I'll be here at our studios in the British Library with Rachel. Hello. And Danny. Hello. We do something a little bit different every time, but there's always a healthy dose of things geography, life, and data. Today, we were going to try and talk about all of the alternative forms in academia, different ways that people are building new kinds of careers, either inside, alongside, or out of academia. And this led us to think a little bit more about what it really means to be an academic. How can we do academia differently? And um, something that we return to often in these discussions uh, is the you know role of academic hobbies and this quickly led to further discussion of our academic hobby horses. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about our academic hobby horses. So Rachel, Danny, what are your academic hobby horses? Rachel, go on. <laughs> well, I was just looking at the introductory text that we always read at the beginning of the episode, and it says, today we're talking about, and I think it probably would be more accurate to say, today we're arguing about... Uh, and I'm not sure where to start with my academic hobby horses, but one, I suppose, is definitely around whether or not we overproduce PhDs and whether mm. a lot of our problems in geography, but I think across sort of the academic landscape have to do with our seemingly necessary need to make more PhDs when there aren't any jobs for those PhDs. And so... This is a tricky one, and this is why it's a hobby horse, because it's one that you can argue about endlessly, right? I mean, maybe, well, definitely, academic structures are such that we have privileged precarity rather than actually offering the necessary full-time permanent academic jobs, which would then employ the PhDs that we're producing. So there's a need, I think, for, for structural change. But on the other hand, maybe not all jobs require a PhD, so why should we make PhDs? And also, I have this increasing feeling sometimes that a lot of, that my career and the career of a lot of people at my stage is built on the the consumption of PhDs and postdocs. So I think I'll choose that as my main hobby horse, but I'm sure that we will find more. <laughs> well, um, considering that I learned about seven minutes ago the definition <laughs> of hobby horse, uh, I'll, I'll go and try mine. I think one of mine is I, that I always... If I'm taking the definition of hobby horse as something that after a beverage or two at a conference or post-conference session at a pub, you end up returning to and discussing is the need, but also the endless possibilities that being open with the activities that you do in academia affords you, but also affords the rest of the world. And how surprised really I, I still am that not more people do it. And I would say, again, after reflecting on mine, that I always return to kind of what's the relationship between us as academics and society, and in particular, politics. Um, and I've always been kind of passionate about making sure that the stuff that I study doesn't just live in academic journals, but I'm trying to participate in public you know, discussions or proceedings like redistricting committees or civic bodies like rent control commissions, things like this. I, I really strongly feel that really good work uh, can't be politically neutral. It, it has to participate in society in some way. And that then sometimes regrettably means that as an academic, you're, you're not 
able to be neutral on a lot of things. You have to be able to take in evidence and talk about, you know, the way that the public good is ordered. Um, I remember from Ron Johnston's inaugural lecture as a professor, I wasn't there, of course, but I've read the transcript and he puts as his central idea that public welfare is the critical question in geography. And I think that that, you know, changes the way that you act as a, as a geographer. So for me, at least, I find myself returning to that a lot. Let's make something political about it. Let's get involved. Can I, yeah, can I have a second hobby horse? Yeah, of course. Because I think it's going to, it's going to frame a lot of what we have to talk about, which is why is everything now free labor? And what does that mean for like what our job description is for academics? Because something that I see sort of across the board at, at my stage of career, but I think all the way up and all the way down is this increasing emphasis on um, some parts of our job not really being a real part of the job. And one of those would be reviews for journals. But it seems to me giving seminars is another great one. Like, is this a part of the job? If somebody invites you to another university to give a talk, should they pay you for your time because that's not part of your job? Or, you know, or if you just go, is it free labor? And so this... This, this concept of free labor, I think, has permeated all aspects of our life. But especially when it comes up in academic circumstances, it is something that can really, really get me going. That's a great way to be thinking about, I guess, doing academia differently and all the different modes of production and way that you, we're, we're called to do these things. As Danny noted, right, there's no producing code and maintaining code, producing data and maintaining data is really important. But it's, you know, not by far from kind of what's considered to be a standard academic mode of production, right? So I guess maybe reflecting a little bit on why we think that's important uh, may, be, may be useful. Well, I, I think the point about openness, there's just so many points I'm trying to tackle this from. I think it is written in the DNA of our job. And if you, when, you know, we call it now open science, 200 years ago, it, was, it wasn't called open because there was no non-open science, right? The whole thing was, was open. At some point, things became less, and then someone realized, well, actually, this, this should be more accessible, more trans transparent, and more reproducible, depending on which part of the of the job. And and maybe this, this might be controversial, but I think it is, we have one of the few jobs where it is actually very easy to be open where we don't have legal teams that will tell us don't publish these slides or or don't uh, publish this code because this is the property of the company and we make our business on it and i know that in legally that might not actually be true but i think in general we can we don't have those constraints and i'm surprised that not more people do it and uh, yeah well i think i agree with you in general that one of the you know, I think one of the defining characteristics of an academic job, if we're speaking in traditional terms, is that we're producing knowledge that gets shared throughout the world. And somehow, over time, we we came to, I think, narrowly define this in terms of monographs or books, mm. right, or journal articles. Mm -hmm. Public lectures, I think, have probably always been a form of, yeah. of putting knowledge out into the world. And that, I think, has continued to evolve. But we've also expanded widely, I think, yeah. what it means to put our knowledge out into the world. And some of this, I think, now counts as hobbies that may or may not be recognized. And some of it is sort of either going back to old forms of production that used to exist, right? Making data available freely, 
but also making knowledge available freely. Uh, you know, that's how it used to be. And can we get back there for really important reasons? Yeah. It's also at the same time, I think there's the redef redefinition of what our job is, right? Like historically, writing code didn't used to be part of our job because writing code didn't used to be part of the world. <laughs> so maybe that's why in our conscious is not part of what we should be doing. But if you think of the idea of spreading knowledge or making, you know, public welfare, and which is, is a lovely way to put it, you know, how do we think today, not everyone, but definitely in the areas that the three of us work, a lot of our thinking happens with computers, alongside computers and in tandem with computers. And, you know, if most of the tech companies have their way, more than just the people who are in our areas are going to start doing that more and more. So if we don't do this open, it's how can you trust it? How can you be sure that what you're using from someone else is, is going to be reliable or, or worth paying attention? Sure. But I suppose a flip side, though, for if you're thinking about writing, which may also hold for code, is that 100 years ago or 150 years ago, <laughs> even 50 years ago, if you wrote a book or a journal article, there's someone whose entire job was to edit and polish and check and make sure that everything was suitable for publication. So it wasn't that it was open in the sense of you write it and then it goes out into the world just as you've done it. And so the the reason I think that we, that thinking especially of publication and, and the sort of academic publishers and like the chokehold that they have on what we produce and the profits that they make from it, all of which is really problematic. If we were to imagine a new world, people's wives, because this is a lot of times what it was, people's wives aren't home doing the typing and the copy editing. There aren't professional editors anymore. So how are we going to do that? Or do we think that that's not necessary? And in the case of code, I think this is this is really important because we need to sort of f work into the system. If it's open and free and therefore all, as in all people, how, how are we going to ensure that it's fit for purpose and clean and ready to use? And I think we're sort of assuming that that through use, bugs will be found and, and things will be cleaned as they're used, yeah. which is okay for some types of data, but is really problematic for other kinds of data. Yeah, I think that code is, is one term for a lot of things. There's research yeah. code, and I think fit for use there is fit to read, because I think that's the, the main value for for most research code is, is not necessarily to be run again, is to be seen how others have done things and mostly to learn. If I think of how I learned a lot of my coding jobs, which you could argue are not ideal, but a lot of it is reading other people's code. And I think that's role number one. Now that at some point transitions into what the industry calls production code. And I think there's a whole other discussion on how do we create infrastructures and how do we define an academia that is compatible with sustaining production ready code that is not made out of hobbies, basically, or out yeah. of hobby time. Yeah, this is something I find fascinating and totally related to my hobby horse of getting involved in civic processes, because a lot of the value that academics create for society is often locked up in experimental code databases that live in a public GitHub or the replication material of a, of a journal article. And if we are not, you know, we're not paid, it's free labor to make production ready science, to write a software package that anybody can use to do an analysis like what you've done, right? If you come up with a new statistic or make a new data set, that's, that's something you're doing and it's generally not recognized. But if you don't do that, the only people who are going to be able to replicate what you've done or use the tool that you've written are people at 
highfalutin companies with a lot of money to pay an engineer to clean up your code. So there is this kind of weird dissonance in the way that we think of openness, but then you know, we're creating, equal, yeah, it, creating an inequality with that. These are hobbies then. For a lot of us, this is the stuff that we do on the side. And there are lots of, I think, kinds of academic labor that get performed on the side, not because we have to. Um, I don't know if we'd go so far as to say it's because we want to. I mean, I suppose oh, that's yeah. what it comes no, down to. In my to. case, that's definitely <laughs> I, I derive utility from yeah but I, but I was going to say this creating a statistic I think that's a little different if you put your name on it traditionally speaking uh there you go you've established your career and this is you know might fall more into the category of clout than anything else Indeed. but uh yeah I mean if I could come up with a Franklin statistic I'm pretty confident that even now uh my reputation would be set <laughs> well I think I think it's more about the way of you know, coming up with a statistic and then implementing it in a tested package at high performance for anybody to use. I think there's a vague boundary there between where your your science ends and where the public's public expectation service. of you is, right? And, and some service. of that is public service. It's It's civic action to society to make sure that your science is open. In Do you way. not think that there's a risk of thinking that everything we're doing though is in service to society when society doesn't need most of what we're doing? I mean, honestly, it's really easy for us to say everything I'm do is useful. Everything I do in my research is so useful yes, to the world. Yes, but when there are demands, actually, I think that the point that Libra is trying to make, where you're getting a volume of emails asking, "Why is this not fixed? How, you know, I can't run this. Help me." There is a demand. Maybe it's not the whole of society, but there is a demand from which you would benefit close to zero. But you sometimes do it because you think there is it's a service or it's a what do you think if you create a, a statistic now if we had the the arribas bell statistic for <laughs> would you need a package to go along with it or well, can you just there come would up need with to you... be a package whether some okay. whether it you was would. me writing it okay. or not the franklin think... statistic is an excel spreadsheet i think we can all just be clear on that <laughs> yeah a little macro yeah kidding macro. kidding 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 for SPSS. anyone who's listening <laughs> <laughs> it would not be excel um so one thing i wanted to bring on this discussion is that this is not really a i don't feel like it's a, an entirely new discussion but maybe what are your views on what was the trend that this is going is this changing because i feel like i've heard a variation of this I didn't say this lightly, that it was my hobby horror. I've heard a variation of this discussion at several pubs in different countries over the last two decades at least. Do you think we've come any way closer to this becoming a better state of affairs? Has it changed at all? Do you think it's about to change? That's a good question. I think it's become a lot easier to do the minimum required to make sure that members of the public are able to use what you what you can but no i think it's you know just the remarkable depth of a lot of this code that people implement and they publish and then they can't maintain because it, it's just like science the code that underwrites science is growing just as quickly if not faster than the the science itself so you know it it that maintenance cost is ever growing in a way and it it becomes really difficult i think over time it, it it stacks up so i don't know what'll happen with that but i think that if we're talking about the social sciences and geographic data science anything at the sort of the intersection of data science and and geography certainly 
but across the social sciences, that is more like a bifurcation that for sure analytics, um, analysis, data products, code, all of that I think is much more mainstream and much more recognized. I think across the social sciences, just the rise in just the role of, of R certainly has mm. has revolutionized how social how quantitative social scientists think about analysis, which has then spilled all the way back down to Stata, for example, which is what I would have grown up using. But it's a bifurcation because I think if you want the impactful social science that's a whole different stream of people, of researchers and research. And I think that's the stuff that still gets largely paid attention to. I think if you want to affect policy, if you want to be read about in the newspaper, if you want your, if you want to be an ideas person, then you have to be an ideas person and not a code person. Mm. And I think that increasingly we face a choice. I think there are probably some people who combine these two things really well. But to a large extent, the, bi the, the big ideas people are the people who get the platforms. And in the social sciences, ideas are kind of, I think, what we think we care about. It used to be that the analysis and the data, all of that stuff was just help, stuff that helped get us along to the big ideas as opposed to being an entirely different thing. And now we need both, right? We need it all. But I think they're probably, my, my guess is that there is a hierarchy and maybe that is, maybe that is changing, but that there is somehow like, a, mm. you know, the... You could almost think of as as the drones at the base. I know that I'm not I'm not trying to be offensive. I think this is just sort of like the way that probably a lot of people envision is that there's like this whole base of people turning cranks and crunching numbers, but they're not interpreting anything. And then the big theoretical findings, the big stuff that happens on top in the social sciences can be anyone, quantitative or non-quantitative, which is definitely different from like biology or physics yeah. where the stuff where it's so tightly integrated that you, you yeah. it's difficult to separate the two. But I don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. look at economics, which is definitely a social science. Um, and I think maybe... Very quantitative and empirical. Yeah. Or it's turned very quantitative and empirical 20 years ago. It's very different. Yeah. Well, speaking of the asks and the boundary between ourselves and modes of production, um, I guess, you know, a lot of us think of these questions in, in you know, our personal academic hobbies, writing, in, whether or not they're writing code or... Uh, participating in departmental events as free labor. Um, when we when we think about them as hobbies, it kind of changes the way that we understand ourselves, right? Because they might not necessarily be something that you're doing for, you know, career advancement, but something like the love of the game. Um, so I guess in that mode, I, I wonder, you know, especially with the rise of Twitter and like the way that academics have to be as a public person all the time, are we expected to be entrepreneurial? And is that a good thing? I, I don't really know, but it seems like more and more, we uh, we we have to kind of perform in a way of of innovating and and making sure that all of our work is impactful and presenting a particular public profile. We have to maintain clout, right? Well, I, I think I might punt on the clout part, although I probably have opinions on that too. But I think it's something that Danny touched on at the beginning of the episode, which is re if you think about it, the traditional academic job. Like, so leaving aside all the difficulties around who gets to have access to those few really good, permanent, full-time academic jobs. The best thing about it was, and I think still is, that you define what that job means. As long as you tick a few boxes, right? As long as you publish the correct number of papers, probably in the correct number of outlets, as long as you get that one book out before tenure, as long as you're teaching your classes and your students like you, this 
I know in other in other settings or other contexts sounds like a pretty heavy ask, but actually that's not much. And the rest of it is all up to you to decide what what it is that you want to write those papers about, right? Who do you want to work with? How what your individual writing style is? How much you're going to promote it? And so that flexibility of thinking about how much you care about co code, for example, public lectures <laughs> or public lectures, right? Or Twitter, yeah, um, and be, or being a public facing intellectual that. And so in that sense, we probably are, we're all entrepreneurial. If what we think being entrepreneurial is, is finding your own bespoke basket of activities yeah. that you're going to take part in. I, don't know, I, th I think entrepreneurial is a bit of a loaded term I th and it's more commentary of the time. I think that sort of the impetus that we place on, on individuals and so on, but it, if you frame it as you have flexibility to build your profile, absolutely. And and in some ways, we're your line manager, and mostly sometimes your line manager will define your job. But there is, you know, quite a bit of bandwidth that you have to 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 play with. And I think the other thing I would say, and because this may be sounding a bit too self-satisfying for for some people, is that this is a process that changes a lot over your career. That I think would. What you can, but in both ways, I don't think it continuously gets better necessarily. I think it just changes and gets different. The, the amount of flexibility that you have when you're a postdoc or when you're an early career researcher is on certain dimensions, and then you you gain more flexibility and more freedom in others. But you know, I wish I wrote more code every day than than I than I do these days, and and these things also change. So I think it's it's not a everything all the time for everyone. Yeah, it's hard to know kind of where that participating patient in doing your job ends and where, you know, something that I would call a work hobby begins, right, in those ways. And I think a lot of it, you know, is not uh, stuff we're explicitly paid to do, but then enumerating all the things that we're supposed to do feels weird, right? Like, it's fake. Do you think of yourself as entrepreneurial? I think I have to be, yeah. I think it's an externally imposed situation. Ah, but so how would you define that? Like, um, in order for you to be competitive, right? You have to like come up with an angle on how to, you know, do your own science, right? You have to have like a way of being. And, you know, some of that is like the way you present your research. Some of that is like what you choose to write about. But then, as you say, right, there's only so many things that you have to do throughout the day and the other stuff you can choose to do. So... I might choose to serve on some committees and not others or review certain papers and not others. And that constructs a way that you are, right? It's entrepreneurial in the sense that you get to direct it. Ah, so I don't think I feel that way. Hmm. I think that to me, growing up and also settling into a career has been more about voice finding would probably be the sort of the framing that I would prefer, which is that you try doing a lot of different things in your job that you're required to do as an academic and you pick and choose the stuff that fits. It's like trying on clothes, better analogy. You try on lots of clothes until you start to find the outfits that suit you better. And then you try and you try to the best of your ability to do more of those things. And then maybe that, that pinch point is that some people find more space to do those things that they like. And some people struggle maybe to find more of that time. But when I, find myself using the word hustle, which is, I think, one that I would associate with entrepreneurialism. When I say that I feel like I have to hustle for something, I never mean it positively. I always mean that I feel like I'm having to, like, you know, it's like being a salesperson on used car sales lot or something. Like, I'm having to get out and do something that is not 
in my comfort zone. It's not the way I want to be spending my time. Uh, and hustle to me implies a, a risk. You might not be successful in your hustle. Yeah. So, so maybe I'm not entrepreneurial. Maybe, yeah. I mean, if you if you if you have a collection of things that you can try on, though, that I guess that that freedom would would be one of the ways to conceptualize entrepreneurial. But it doesn't sound like that's about value in that way, right? But, it's but about what I'm what advising like. early career researchers, just to take yeah, something yeah. like teaching, for example, I think everyone needs to teach who's in a traditional academic post mm -hmm. or job, as we would say in America. Uh, Everyone's got to teach, but you try teaching, uh, hopefully, over the course of five years, you try teaching some seminars, you're teaching some lecture courses, you're teaching some semesters where you teach the same thing two times a week, and sometimes where you've got two different courses that you're teaching over the course of the week. I call that learning and trying on outfits. And hopefully, over the course of a few years, you realize, I love 500 student lecture halls, or you realize... I really like computer labs because I like to be able to interact individually with students. And it's your point is well taken that in some some places it's not going to matter what your preferences are because you're going to get assigned to teach the stuff that has to be taught. But in most places, it all kind of settles over time, right? As you've been there for longer, you settle into you're the stuff that is yours. To, exactly. To, and then the seniority sort of gives you some flexibility to to get more more time. Are you entrepreneurial, Danny? Oh, no, I don't like the term entrepreneurial, I think. But why? Can we unpack that a little? Yeah, because, well, I, yeah, I do. I, I know why I don't like it, because it is, it places the, the role on the individual and it implicitly says that you sort of make or break your career. And I don't know in other places, but in academia, it really just is not like that. It is a collective endeavor. You write with people, you're supported with people that let you teach on certain courses or not. You... And when you call yourself entrepreneurs, like you hustled your way, you, everyone was against you and you did what you did because you were this, this one person that, you know, maverick. And I don't like to think of my career that way. And it's I also just, sport. yeah, I just don't <laughs> think it is. It is a team sport. And, but I also think it's not necessarily, you know, despite the, A, I don't like it, but B, I think the the more we tell ourselves that that's the narrative of what we do, the less we make it a team sport. And I think there's a lot to lose in in the team sport. I so, agree with so you. So yeah, sure. I, I'm actually sure. just finding that I'm not an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. I might have some uh, individual interests <laughs> <laughs> for the team. Yes, yeah. hobbies, exactly. I have hobbies. Which does make more sense, right? Because the, the idea of a hobby is something that you do for again, the love of the thing, right? It's not that you want to become famous or successful for doing it, but it is something that you, you, you elect to do in that way. So I think that framing makes a lot more sense than what I would suggest is maybe a more kind of neoliberal institutional so perspective. So we're all hobbyists. Well, yeah. in a way, yeah. Yeah. we all have our academic hobbies and the hobby yeah. horses that come with them. Well, I mean, I could say, because we, we talked a little bit about whether we want to talk about modes of production. And I think Twitter is a great example that we probably all have different ideas about. And it's true that engagement with Twitter and my use of Twitter is definitely changing. In around 2018, I did have the idea that maybe it needed to be part of my job to maintain a minimal presence and that I'd probably had better figure out how to do this thing. It very quickly morphed into a, how do I master this this like medium of of communication like what like, how does this work like how do you get people to listen to you how like how do you say something that's interesting and, and of course there's it's complicated because you love the feedback of having people respond to what you've said 
but I've also, this is a little bit like the voices and trying on outfits. What I've settled on is that it's a, it is one of those outfits that I've tried on that actually fit. And for whatever reason, it seems to suit my personality, my, my way of communicating, my preference for something short and preferably funny, but funny and short, um, engaging with a wider audience. And so it's, it's true that I'm writing this groundswell of like what everyone probably feels about having to engage on social media platforms, whether they want to or not to a certain extent. Um, but it is one that I have realized suits me well, and I find it fun, but I find it challenging in that it feels like it's a nut that can be cracked if I can just figure out how it works. And that keeps me coming back and trying things. And so that makes it a hobby, I think. And do you think of it as part of your job? Oh, well, this is why I think it's probably would be classically sort of like an academic hobby in that. Uh, and probably I'm a little bit neoliberal in this. This is making me think a little bit that I do tend to think that there's a lot of what we do. So there's the team sport, which I believe. Then in the middle, there's this thing that we call the university. And then there's us as individual researchers. I believe in the team sport piece and I believe in the individual researcher piece. I do not believe that my university owns any of these things about me, which means I don't see it as part of my job, but I do see it as part of my, I think Levi would think would call it something like around academic identity or something like I see, profile, I don't like the word yeah. brown. I don't like brand, brand or profile, but that this is, but it is part of your brand. It's, it's part of, <laughs> it it's, part of, it's part of what I do. And so do I see it as part of my job? No. And if, if at work, people do push a little bit, like to have me be the person who regularly is responsible for certain kinds of outputs, I do shy away from that because yeah. I want the creative piece of Twitter, not the like monotonous, like, yeah, but you're, yeah, that's a very good point. Is a part of my job. I think something no. that in discussing this episode, I realized the point about academic hobbies, the obvious, but maybe not that obvious thing is that they are hobbies, but they're also academic. So they're not, which is, to, it means a few things. The first one is that it, at least for me, I don't think they should replace your actual hobbies. <laughs> that you should still have your own life outside work. The other one, which we're also discussing in terms of if, if you were to give advice on this to someone who's starting, like, should you stop writing papers to do other things like we're talking, like being on Twitter and, and it's yes and no, I think. So what I've realized or in this discussion, I've, I've come to realize is that the academic hobbies are these things that they're a bit like experience and like, I come that life gives you when you've gone bold. No, like there are things that will end up helping you a lot, just not in the ways that you expect them and not at the times that you think you need them. So if you need, you know, they don't replace doing the things that you need to do to get a career, to get the next job. But if you don't do any of them at the end of the day, I think you, you miss a really important part of what it is to be an academic and what it is or what you job should be ultimately. And I think if you ask other academics, ultimately they'll use different words, but you know, what, why do you do this? At the end, I think, well, cause I have to, or it's part of, they'll say even it's part of my job is not part of their job. Their job is teaching what they don't like teaching and yeah. And then other things too, but, but these things they're, they're useful, just not in the way you want them at certain times They they, they will prove useful, but at, at their own will, not at your yours. Yeah, it's interesting because this kind of notion that maybe they'll be valuable at some point, right? This idea that they... Oh, oh sorry, and you shouldn't do them because they're valuable. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's exactly, the other defining point of your hobby, yeah. sorry. That's exactly what I was I was thinking because... If you don't like them, 
Yeah, it, it, the, I think the distinction, at least in my mind, between, you know, seeing literature on, you know, the entrepreneurial academic or the entrepreneurial whatever, is that there's this expectation of value, right? And that we, we engage in activities and we choose what we do because we think that there's going to be some kind of outcome. And sometimes I, I worry about the way in which, like, advice is given in that way, that, like, you know, I enjoy working on computational geometry questions. And I remember using the term recreational coding one time. And and <laughs> the people that were listening... <laughs> well, right. So it's, it's interesting, though, that to some people, that cannot exist. But for me, I enjoy something about the problem solving, something about the thinking of those, you know, the, the way to solve a particular issue or, you know, the, 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 it, it, it's a puzzle in a way. And it's interesting how you do kind of hope that these things come together to make, you know, a community of people that, that have different skill sets and different interests and are naturally kind of aligned towards a goal together. But it's hard uh, to, to make that work. Right. And I think that actually the beauty of any job, that's the thing that you should be looking for in any job. But I think especially the, the one that we have is that you still have the space to, to be creative and be recreational and learning. So for me, the, I, I'm, full disclosure, much less of a coder, recreational or otherwise than Danny or Levi. But what I really like when I when I do dip my toes in that water is because I really want to master a challenge of can I figure out how this thing is working? Can I take it apart? And then would I be able to put it back together for my own purposes and have it actually like work? And that it happens very rarely these days, but it's my favorite part of the job. My favorite part always of the job even with the the data piece was that you get to take a data set that is like a little bit messy and figure out if you can make it answer the questions that you want to ask of it, which requires an awful lot of different kinds of mental tasks. And so I think what we always want to do is sort of make space. I don't know if I call it a hobby. It's the making space for learning. It's the lifelong learning element of things yeah, that we need in what, our personal lives, but also in our work lives. It's what companies would call research and development, right? It's the things that don't have a direct impact, but if you don't do any of that, well, <laughs> we would still be using stones probably instead of smartphones. And it's really tricky. I, th I find it really tricky because there are other things that are much more clearly valuable. And when you're doing your job and particularly when you have, you know, I recently had a baby and it really focuses your mind <laughs> on how you should be using your time and, and how much time you, you really need to stem, spend on your job or you can go and spend with, with your born daughter but it is a challenge and I think it's important that you need to continue to spend some time and it doesn't have to be regular it doesn't have to be a lot it can come and go but if, if you forget about that you will become the academic that continues and that writes the same paper several times that writes the same grant several times and it's you, you can survive I suppose I, I couldn't have that job I think so it seems like we all kind of agree that this structure of ha having academic hobbies is, you know, a wonderful thing sometimes that we're able to kind of derive the satisfaction from our jobs. And it is something I think that many aspirants to our industry uh, are interested in, why people pursue PhDs, because they see these kinds of hobbies and they think they're cool, maybe want to participate it on their own. But I guess, do you really need a PhD anymore to participate in these kinds of academic hobbies? What does it mean for any one of these hobbies that we've noted to be an academic one versus just a regular hobby. Well, I think you do. <laughs> I, well, 
Yeah, I, I mean, the way you this is interesting the way you've you phrased it, Levi, because to me it seems that um, increasingly a lot of knowledge intensive jobs have the flexibility uh, that they didn't used to have, and so where you used to have to have to have to have an academic job to have that freedom to learn new things and try new things and work a little bit flexibly. Now it seems like lots of people have that on offer. Um, and so I presume it comes with the freedom to also cultivate those, I guess you would call them non-academic hobbies or in industry hobbies. Yeah. Because if they don't, then, uh, then our job is still the pr preferable one because I think most of us do have that space. Now, if the question was about whether uh, if you want to work in geographic data science or anything that's sort of knowledge intensive and computational or data intensive, whether you need a PhD for those jobs, I think I pretty resoundingly feel like the answer is no, that the reason that you go to go to school for a PhD is to go to school. You go to school to, to learn a whole bunch of stuff and live a little bit a life of the mind. And that the traditional PhD is not set up then to na naturally transition people out into the wild where you need a lot of other kinds of skills. Now, this all breaks down because it turns out you need a lot of those skills inside the academy. Also, people didn't used to have them. Now we think people should have them. But what the PhD is supposed to do, clearly, uh, this is one of my hobby horses. I don't know. Maybe I'm reevaluating my views. But I think doing a PhD affords you time to do thinking you can do in any other context that comes useful in a lot of them. And I think there's a lot of jobs in knowledge intensive industries that you for which you don't need a PhD, but those are invented jobs. And you know, I don't know if they'll be automated away or not, but they'll diminish in relevance because the it'll be pretty clear what needs to be done. And I think the jobs that are challenging but also well remunerated is where it's not clear what you need to do but still needs to be done. And I think those kinds of, of skills, which are a little bit like the ones that you get with the hobby horses, maybe, is what the PhD at its best gets you. And I, I take your point that I don't think at its best is on average or, or widespread, but, but I don't think the alternative is better. Of course, many people pick up academic hobbies for the first time when they're trying to delay doing their PhD or finishing <laughs> well, it. Yeah. So that does happen. Yeah, but so an argument that's often made about doing a PhD and then taking a non-academic job is that the process of doing the PhD will teach you all sorts of skills other than the actual research that you did for the PhD, and those skills are in demand. This is especially common, I think, across the social sciences and humanities. And I think where where I get on my hobby horse is that project management, for example, like you didn't need to do six years of a PhD to learn how to manage a project. Like if what you're selling yourself for is having a PhD is that you've gained skills in critical thinking, writing and project management, I just hate to break it to you, but I don't think you needed to go do a PhD to gain those skills. And and I think that we're doing it to, to assuage both our guilt about people not getting academic jobs. I Because I don't, I don't think that the PhD I think it probably does provide those skills, but I just think you could get them in a year on the job and be yeah, but five you would years be ahead. hired for being able to do those things in addition to writing code, knowing, having the technical background, having the contextual background, which is I think what maybe the social scientist in me would like to think that is well, I am convinced is useful. So I don't think it's for selling. Come here so you learn pro project but say, management. Is. But say three years of a PhD if you're in more of a UK setting, or six years in more of a North American setting, 
are you going to have more skills than you would have had with three or six years on the job in industry? I think you'll have more transferable skills, yes. Mm. It's hard to know, I think. it's And all of that occurs in the backdrop of generating too many PhDs, right? Like I know my, my personal kind of concern about, you know, recruiting a postdoc or submitting something for a postdoc is that I don't, I don't really agree with the production of postdocs. I don't think that like, it's a good way to organize academic endeavors is to have these temporary positions that people roll into and out of. I understand where they fit inside of an ac academic mentorship chain, but I also wonder if there's this same problem in a PhD that, yeah, you know, there are benefits to it, but is it worth the kind of opening up of this, you know, oversupply? I'm not sure. Well, I have strong opinions about this because in the UK, it's referred to as rep reproduction of the discipline is something that you can be evaluated on. And I wholeheartedly believe that we should not be reproducing our discipline unless we actually have good jobs for those people to go to. And geography is a complicated discipline because it's not all quantitative. Um, but I think, you know, across the board, I am happy to produce or practice what I, what I refer to as academic birth control. Postdocs, I, so I have tended to want to recruit postdocs because my sense is that it's like a, it's like a conditional, it's a conditional framing, right? Where the, these are people who have decided that they want to be academics. And so I'm actually helping people with a PhD onto the next stage of their career. It's measurable for me in terms of my success. Do I help them go on to the next thing? When they leave me and working with me, do we see a sort of a step change, right? And it's hard to measure that. Often people were already on a great trajectory, whether or not they had anything to do with me. Um, but but it feels clearer to me because I think I share very much, I, f I, I very much share your concerns. And, and I've been able to sort of come to terms with the postdoc piece, but I'm much less able to come to terms with the PhD piece. I think it's definitely harder to harder to navigate that part of it. But um, yeah, it is it is an interesting question whether or not it uh, kind of gives you something unique or interesting over and above what you would have had otherwise. Oh, well, I just wanted to say, I mean, I don't know if Danny wants to weigh in on this, but, but the UK is really interesting on the Centers for Doctoral Training, which is something that we haven't touched on at all. But at Liverpool, for example, having a Center for Doctoral Training that is um, almost specifically geared towards producing PhDs who will who will come out with industry desired skills I think yeah. is a way around it's a way of skirting this issue Indeed. of jobs and PhD but is, skills. Yes, it's, it's redefining what PhD training is and yeah. I mean Liverpool I think we're pathbreaking and all that but we're not definitely we're not the only ones I think it is a, a good thing of one of the good things that UK funders have and I was thinking when you were I don't feel guilt. Maybe I don't have enough postdocs or PhD students to feel bad about them, but I don't feel guilt because on the CDT, the example that I was given on the of my conversation is 10%, 20% might be interest, interested in an academic career. All of the rest are interested in industry. And and to the, the point on why I was saying that it's important is, you know, I don't know if conceptually is relevant or not, but all of them are getting jobs that are I don't think would be they would be able to get with the degree they came on when they came. Now, of course, the converse, the, the comparison is, had they gone to industry, would be would they be on on that job at this point? But I also don't know actually because the four years that they spend on the PhD it affords them the ability to do th what I was saying more transferable skills to get skills that 
you will always have to center on a particular job, but that you can take to the next one and they will be more useful than all the knowledge expertise you get on the particular hierarchy of the company where you've spent the last four years. And I don't know that you can reproduce that in industry. Yeah, I mean, where I think we're sort of slowly winding down, but but I do think that if we're talking about sort of new new forms of academia and ways that academia is changing, one of the real strengths of the UK system is these centers for doctoral training, which sort of shift the conversation completely for PhDs to say, what is the purpose of a PhD? PhD should perhaps serve industry needs. What does industry need? Let's recruit students to develop those skills and allows you to complete this. It's partly this the, the complete reimagining of what PhD training might look like that I find really appealing because some places will get it more right than other places will. So that process of experimentation and sorting out what professional development looks like and what research looks like, I find incredibly appealing. Yeah, no, totally. It's, it's a, a very good idea, I think, with the the there's a couple of them that are these kinds of employment oriented ones and i think they're absolutely excellent and very distinctively uk in a in a in a very nice way so i think with that um we'll probably wind it up here but thank you very much for listening uh we hope that you enjoyed uh the discussion of all of our various academic hobbies and hobby horses uh catch us on your favorite podcasting app spotify uh, apple podcasts or what have you um, and we'll be back with more content uh, over the rest of the summer. Thanks, and we're glad to see you here.